Wall Street is full of corruption and it is baked in to every aspect of our society. MMT is a lens by which you assess all economic understanding at the macro level. In the 1900s, Lenin was predicting global finance capital would do all the things it's doing today. This was written over a hundred years ago. This is The Rogue Scholar with Steve Grumbine. All right, everybody, it is Steve, the Rogue Scholar, and I'm going to talk to you for a few minutes. It's going to be a short stream today, but today's stream is largely taking some of the things that I say in the live streams that I do and sort of explaining them, because I, I think maybe I, I just assume everybody knows what I'm talking about. And when I do that, it clearly leaves some people behind, and it leaves a lot of people with questions, sometimes questions they're not quite sure about. And so what I wanted to do is first off, start off talking about what is it when I say that the dollar is a tax credit. I say the dollar is a tax credit all the time. I say the dollar is nothing more than a tax credit. So what it is, is in other words, when a, I don't know, an airline issues air miles or something like that. They're issuing you a debt, so to speak. They're saying, hey, if you exchange this airline mile, you can get an airline trip. You can get a trip somewhere, right? So they're saying we will accept that airline mile in exchange for travel. Okay. The United States government, when it issues dollars into the economy, it's saying, hey, We'll accept that dollar in payment of tax. So when I say it's nothing more than a tax credit, it means that it's a dollar waiting to be paid back as a tax. That's it. it, it it's nothing more than that. And so the you know airlines don't flip out and lose their minds over, hey, you know, there's all these outstanding airline miles out there. They don't do that. They don't worry about whether those airline miles are going to bankrupt them. They don't care about that either. When they issue their air credit or their seat credit or trip credit or whatever that credit they want to do, that's all this is, is a tax credit. You, you're stacking up credits in your, your account waiting to pay back in taxes. That's what it's there for. So the United States government issues a tax, creates a tax, so that you have to have that dollar to pay for it. You can't pay your taxes in anything other than that tax credit, which is the U.S. dollar. You can't buy bonds, by the way, either, government bonds, without having that tax credit. You see, it's these tools that they use to create an obligation. You're obligated to pay this thing. You're obligated to pay the tax. You're obligated to pay the fine or the fee. You're obligated to do whatever. In other words, you could not bring a Chuck E. Cheese coupon to U.S. Air or American Airlines or United or whoever it is and say, hey, I've got a, a coupon here for 50 cents. I'd like to cash it in towards airline miles or like need airline miles. You need an airline mile credit to be able to exchange it, to be able to get 
to travel. In this case, the United States government is saying, you have a tax credit, that dollar. Now, they don't call it a tax credit, though they should call it a tax credit. But the tax credit means that it's a, it's a tax waiting to be paid back. They're willing to accept that $1 in payment for $1 in tax. There's that. Now, the next one I'm going to show you is this thing called sectoral balances. You hear me talk about sectoral balances all the time. And I imagine sectoral balances probably bounce off your head like a rubber ball against a brick wall. Like, what is Grumbine talking about with a tax credit? What does that even mean, right? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you an image of the sectoral balances, what it looks like in a grid. Now, when I show you the picture, it's going to have like a line down the middle. You're going to have stuff on the top. You're going to have stuff on the bottom. And they're going to mirror each other. Because you're going to realize that one person's spending is another person's income. In the case of the federal government, when it spends money into the economy, it's someone else's income. And so let's go ahead and take a look at that. This right here, if you think about it, this right here allows us to see that the domestic private sector balance. It's you and I. That's our private balance is in blue. The government balance is in red. And the capital account, which is back and forth the uh, trade deficit, if you will, our balance of payments outside of the United States. And you could include uh, demand leakages. Ah, oh, what is a demand leakage? I shouldn't have brought that up. Um, but this capital account is all the non- domestic spending. Uh, that's the balance of accounts between us and other countries. Okay. Now you look, you notice it's all green on the top. That means that we are a net importer, a significant net importer. Okay. The green is assets. They're, they're living La Vida Loca. They're in the plus. The blue domestic private sector, you can see for the most part, it stays positive. But where it drops down into negative, that's when you have a government surplus. So if you look to the right of the picture, there's two sharp blue lines down. That is when Bill Clinton or whoever else ran a, uh, a, a surplus. So the private sector went negative. But the red, why is the red, the government red, always on the bottom here for the most part, except for that one little blip right there where the government sector took in uh, more? That's the tax. It's because the government is the creator of the currency. And so whenever it spends, it puts money out into the economy. So that these are three sectors of the economy, the domestic private sector, you and I borrowing money. Or, or, you know, our, our income. The other is the, uh, the rest of world, which is that green. That's the balance of payments. So this sounds crazy, but just think of it when you see the private sector in negative and you see the government sector in positive, the government doesn't save money. It doesn't keep that money. That money isn't saved for a rainy day. That money is deleted. And let me show you it once more. Again, when we pay our taxes, the red line on the bottom goes down and the blue line 
on the top goes down. And when we tax more than we spend, the the blue, which is you and I, we go into negative territory. And so it's kind of easy when you understand what I just said, when you look at the macro economy and you look at the flows, that diagram right there is how people like Wynn Godley, who are MMTers, and Randy Ray and Steve Keen and the rest of them were able to predict the fall of the economy during the great financial crisis. That sectoral balance image is it. So when you talk about sectors, what does sectors mean? Sectors are little areas, right? They're areas. And we have three areas in that image. Once again, we have the public, which is you and I, I mean, you know, the private sector, I should say, we're the public, but it's the private sector. The blue is the private sector. That's you and I. Again, positive, 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 down, boom, down, boom. Okay. And in order for the government to fix when we're in negative and we have an incredibly large green section, okay, we are spending more outside of the country. That is our dollars leaving this. So naturally, what that ends up doing is creating pressure for the government to spend to fill that back in because that money is left. Otherwise, we end up in recession. So again, when I say sectoral balances, we're talking about the domestic private sector, we're talking about the government, and we're talking about the capital account. Capital account is the trade deficit, or I shouldn't say trade deficit, balance of payments, trade, government balance, which is how much the government has put out there, et cetera. Now, that's probably still not perfect, but I think you get the point that it's always going to mirror each other, always going to be a mirror. Look at this. There is no deviation. It's always a mirror. The three sectors always equal each other. Do you understand that? It's always a mirror representation. That's the two sides of the ledger. Someone's spending is someone else's income. Let's look at it one more time. Do you see how they are perfect mirror images of one another? Perfect mirror images of one another. This is why we say sectoral balances. And if you think about it, that line in the middle, if you consider what that means to us, that's like you standing at a lake, looking at trees down the tree line and looking at the trees on the water as well. They mirror one another. The blue goes up, the red goes down, the blue goes down, the red goes up. But why isn't it even? Because you have to add in that third sector, that green sector. You notice how the green and the red together make up the same amount as the private sector retrenchment down at the bottom? They're exact. They are mirror images of one another. There is no deviation. That is why it's called sectoral balances. Okay. Now, there's probably something that's modernized this up to 2022. Unfortunately, I don't have that. So just remember, this chart here only goes up to the fourth quarter of 2010, which measures clearly the great financial crisis that we went through. All right. So I want to bring up something else, too. If you guys have any questions, I'm trying to keep an eye in the comments here, uh, trying so hard to keep an eye in the comments as well. Why is this not taught in high school? It's a tragedy. Well, they don't want you to know this stuff. If you knew this stuff, you'd be a more effective citizen, and they don't want that. <laughs> So I'm going to go ahead and quickly show you one more thing here real quickly. And this is something I wrote a long time ago, okay? When I say we create the money, 
Let's talk about we create the money. When Congress, I'm going to hide this momentarily. When Congress writes a bill, we have a bill in our hands. They wrote a bill. The bill is going to have, it, they're estimating that it's going to cost $3 billion or $100 billion or $500 billion or a trillion dollars to do whatever. The bill is written, goes to the House, goes to the Senate. They do their own thing, goes through reconciliation. The two sides agree. They pass the bill into law. It goes to the president's desk. Once it goes to the president's desk, he signs it. And then whatever monies were appropriated by congressional authorization in this bill, that's when the Fed makes those deposits into the Treasury's accounts when the Treasury goes to spend that money. Now, the Treasury will look to see if they have money existing in their TGA to spend off whatever. But these are just accounting identities. Accounting identities, what does that mean? It's just numbers in a spreadsheet. I've also said that the dollar is nothing more than an inch or a pound. So you think of it as precious. It's a precious thing because it's hard to come by when you're not a currency issuer. You and I need that. They purposely do that by putting a tax on us that is only payable in the tax. And then they make a lot of rules and stuff to get you and gotcha. Trust me, I am suffering through it majorly right now, majorly suffering through this. All right. But it's that obligation that drives the currency. When I say drive the currency, what does that mean? Well, it's like, imagine having a pipe and you've got a rubber or a metal ball on one side and a magnet on the other. The magnet, if it has enough power, can pull the ball through. Okay. If the magnet doesn't have enough power to pull the ball through, then you need a stronger magnet to pull the ball through. Pretend the magnet is taxation. So all you're doing is to get the economy going is taking that magnet, which is the tax, and putting an obligation out there to drive people to need to get the dollars. What does that do? That creates buyers and sellers of goods because people now are chasing after how to get that dollar to pay that obligation. Again, remember, tax-driven money. Get the magnet, which is the tax, and you got the ball, the metal ball. Put the tax over here. You're not interested in doing anything. You're chilling, no problem. So what do they do? They make it a little harder. All of a sudden, you feel enough tension and the ball comes through the pipe because the magnet was strong enough to pull it through. That is, in essence, what we mean when we say tax-driven money. Does that make sense now? I'm going to look at the chat real quick before I go into the next thing. Does that make sense? Let me see some people say, say they get it. If what I said makes sense, let me have a little bit of something in the comments. Let me know that I'm hitting you because I want to move on to the next thing. Um, all right. Well, you guys ain't playing with me. So I'm going to go ahead and say that you, oh, there we go. All right. So we're good to go. All right. So what I want to do now, what I want to do now is talk to you about another favorite thing. And that is we talk about how, you know, it doesn't matter if we're the world's reserve currency or not. People are really, really caught up in the petrodollar and things like that. 
What does that mean, right? So in the rest of the world, and well, even the United States, quite frankly, when you're doing business with someone else, you need to be able to have enough reserves of their currency to facilitate trade. Otherwise, you have to go out and have the ability to somehow or another get that foreign currency to, to create that, that trade. And so what typically happens is China will keep a certain amount of U.S. dollar holdings at, at the Fed. Other countries, lots of them will keep it too. But when you price oil and stuff in dollars, they've dubbed it the petrodollar. In order to buy the oil in dollars, you have to have dollars. How do they do that? Well, a lot of times they'll use these things called SDRs or special drawing rights from a basket of currencies. And it basically, it's like a, an IMF asset for these developing nations to be able to get U.S. dollars if they don't have them. And if they don't have enough of them, they can have a, what they call a balance of payments problem. In other words, they're a country that requires exports or you know imports, I should say. They require imports to be able to survive. Okay, so what do they have to do? Somehow or another, they have to get the currency that they need to be able to purchase goods from abroad. Okay, and this is where sometimes you have rich people in their country that buy up about a lot of luxury goods and services from foreign nations. You know, they buy the imports and it eats up the large portion of the country's reserves to make those kinds of purchases. Okay. So the country ends up trying to get new reserves, new dollars to facilitate those transactions. This is where the United States having what they call hegemony, okay, allows them to have special rights, if you will, special buying power around the world. There's no question it provides privilege. But what happens if for some reason the petrodollar ended? What happens if for some reason uh, the world reserve currency was no longer the U.S. dollar and we weren't a part of the basket, which is crazy because the basket includes Japan, U.K., the euro, uh, China, you know, et cetera. So, okay, so we're just one of the currencies in the basket. In other words, we are used as a means of facilitating transactions. But what happens when a nation truly doesn't have the ability to buy goods and services abroad from any other country. They end up having to borrow that, that reserves. They have to get those reserves somehow or another. And this is where those smaller nations end up being in very bad situations. They can't generate enough reserves to be able to make those foreign denominated payments. Okay. Foreign denominated, meaning I'm buying something from the United States and I don't have enough U.S. reserves to facilitate the transactions through our banking system, okay? Or in the case of a country like, you know, Venezuela, one of these others that peg their currency, pegging, meaning tying it together, tying a rope to it, tying it to the dollar, okay? Hey, we're hanging on to you, man. We're going to rise and fall with you guys. Whatever you do, dollar, we're hanging on. That's what it means to peg the currency to the dollar or peg it to gold or peg it to something else. So if the price of that goes up and down, your currency goes up and down. So that's what we call an external constraint. Okay. 
In other words, you're no longer dealing with your own sovereign free-floating fiat currency. Now you're dealing with the external factors that touch whatever you've pegged your currency to. If you pegged it to gold and gold is fluctuating, now your currency will fluctuate. If you pegged it to the U.S. dollar, U.S. dollars fluctuating, then it will go ahead and cause you to have fluctuations in your own domestic currency. But what happens if the value of their currency plummets? Well, now your currency plummets as well. Okay, so this is the peg. So when I say the United States government has a sovereign, meaning it's issued by the government, free-floating, meaning it's not pegged like I just said, it's not tethered to gold or oil or anything else. Fiat, meaning by decree, the, in other words, out of thin air, right? Just keyboard, whatever. Congress wrote that bill. It passed law. Keystrokes put it into the, uh, the accounts at the Fed to the Treasury, where it was then spent to whoever was on the contracts that the government entered into. That's how money gets into the system. Once the government spends it on that bill, now money has entered into the economy. That's how money gets in. Banks don't just print it out and it just gets out there. That's not how it works. So you hear me talk about that a lot as well. Okay. So what I want you to think about here is when you look at the payment system with the United States, you look at places like the IMF or the International Monetary Fund, okay? The IMF is used as a means of providing people, typically US dollar liquidity. It gives them a loan in a foreign currency to be able to help facilitate their growth, their, their trades, like their way of getting uh, into, the, into the new world, right? But when they do that, it's not just like a loan, like, okay, we'll pay it back. No, 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 no. It comes with something called structural adjustments or terms and conditions. And those terms and conditions tend to be, you must privatize your public space. You must not protect domestic production with tariffs or anything like that. And you must basically allow private companies to come in there and extract and do business unfettered. These are all the techniques that the IMF puts out there. And this is the type of stuff that's being done to Ukraine as well. So you hear a lot about the Russia slash Ukraine stuff, but what has happened is, is that the United States through NATO and through the EU and through the IMF, European Union, NATO, you know, bullshit, you get it, right? They have created a situation where Ukraine wasn't actually maturing with the rest of the world as much. Their, their industry wasn't nearly as strong. It wasn't as robust. So the IMF comes in there and provides loans. They offer structural adjustments. Now to meet those structural adjustments, they have to do certain things. Well, they didn't get that money from Russia. They got it from the IMF, right? If you think about that. Well, there are Russian loans too, but the IMF puts its hooks in you. And this is part of the game. This is what happened to a lot of uh, African nations, happened to a lot of South American nations, and it continues to happen and will continue to happen as long as this is the business of the way we do business globally. All right. So we talk about the United States government in particular, 
this could be the UK, it could be China, it could be Australia, any one of these countries that issues a sovereign free-floating fiat currency like we do, okay? They cannot go broke on debt denominated in their own currency, meaning anything that's priced and available for purchase in U.S. dollars, the United States can buy anything at once, ever, forever, and ever. And it won't ever, it, period, full stop. It can always do that. Just remember, well, let's go back to the tax-driven money again. As long as that magnet is sufficient to pull that ball through the pipe, okay, then all of a sudden you have tax-driven money. And as long as that's in place, your dollar is not going to fail because there is an obligation there that meets with a pretty harsh reality. Trust me, terrified, okay? So with that in mind, let's look at our military. The government, we always talk about how we don't need to cut the military to be able to pay for health care. We don't need to cut the military to pay for a Green New Deal, okay? But that's a money thing only, just a money thing. We can afford to pay the military. We can blow the world up 10 times over again. We can do that. And we could give ourselves health care. Now, I'm not telling us to do that. I want to be clear. I'm just saying that the two are not in any way, shape, or form tied to one another. Our ability to pay for health care has nothing to do with the amount of money we spend on the military. Okay? Nothing. Zero. Nothing whatsoever to do with that. Now, the real resources, that's a different story. If we don't have enough doctors, nurses, lab techs, phlebotomists, hospitals, whatever, we could have some serious problems. But it isn't going to be because we couldn't afford it. It's going to be because we didn't plan. We didn't actually plan for the bills. We didn't plan for these programs. Thank you, Double K. We ended up trying to institute a program without making sure that we have the real resources in place, the trained nurses, the trained doctors, the trained whatever. And so that requires thinking through your plan. I talk about this all the time. I always talk as a project manager because this is the most important stuff you'll ever learn. Trust me, you got to manage timelines. You've got to understand that if this is supposed to happen by this day, but your plan brings it over here, it fails. If climate change is going to create these horrible crises in 12 years, now eight years, and we have a plan for 30 years, we're probably not going to make it. That should draw a lot of questions in your mind. Okay? That should draw a lot of questions in your mind. If you're telling me that I've got eight years, but yet you tell me you want to start a third party and it's going to change the world and that's how we're going to survive, I'm saying, well, okay, show me your eight-year plan to not just get elected, not just stand up your party, not just, but to actually then mitigate climate change. How are you doing it? Again, eight years. Show me this plan. And when I do that, people get mad at me. But it's simple. It's very simple. If you're two blocks in to your project, the reality is that this block over here is the breaking point. That is right there. That's the event horizon. If you don't have your project over here completed by the time you get to there, you're in trouble. But you're sitting there looking at your stuff and it's going up, 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 up. And you're like, wait a minute, hold on, we missed the target. Well, now we die. So when I talk about timelines, 
people really get angry at me. I don't know why. I mean, it's not like I don't know what I'm talking about. I know exactly what I'm talking about. I just explained it to you. I can explain it to you with crayons if it'll help. But people genuinely get mad at me when I show this. I don't know why. I really don't know why. A project manager is your canary in the coal mine. It's the one to tell you, hey, there's danger ahead. If you ignore that danger and pretend like what I'm saying is incorrect, I don't know what to tell you. But these are the things that I end up trying to explain to you all so that you understand where I'm coming from, okay? When we talk about states and the federal government in the United States, frequently I talk about currency issuers and currency users. You and I are a currency user, okay? We're not a currency issuer. We go back up here for a second. If you remember, the red ink is the federal government. The blue ink, though, is you, it's me, it's Bill Gates, it's Elon Musk, it's the state of Washington, it's the state of California, it's the state of New York. That's what the blue is. The red is the federal government, the blue is the states and everything else. States can't create their own currency, period. Pretty simple story, right? Very simple story. And when you're not thinking at a macro level, if you're putting a burden on the states to do something that they are not equipped to do, doesn't matter how much taxing you do, you create a perpetual race to the bottom because now the states begin competing with each other, but they don't create U.S. dollars. They have to basically poach businesses from other states. So when I talk about currency issuer, currency user, I'm trying to tell you that the government, the federal government being the currency issuer is the only one that doesn't have any issue with making the payment, period. But at the state level, though, you would have to tax. And once you start taxing, doesn't matter how much money you're saving, because remember, what is savings? Let's look at that banner again. What is savings? Savings is that green. It's part of the green. It's a demand leakage. In other words, you're taking the demand out by people saving money. It's actually creating recessionary conditions. How weird is that to think that people saving money creates recessions? But it does. So what happens as your state starts slowing its GDP down, its own GDP, its own state-based GDP, and all of a sudden the revenues fall? How are you going to pay for your programs if you're relying on tax dollars to do that? Where are you going to get the money from? The only place you can get it is either taking out loans hoping some rich person moves to your state, luring a business to your state and hoping to God that they bring enough revenue into the state to make it worthwhile, or the federal government. And it's the federal government that is always going to be the currency issuer. The states are currency users. So let's get this thing back up. We can never run out of money. Congress created the Fed. Back in 1913, the Federal Reserve Act, there's a lot of conspiracy gibberish. 
It doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't matter. The Fed is the nation's central bank. And the Fed gives back all of its profits to the Treasury, who puts that in the general fund, the TGA. Okay. We never run out of money. We can never run out of money unless it's political, because Congress controls spending. The debt, national debt, is nothing more than a savings account at the Fed purchased with existing U.S. dollars. It's not debt at all. Let's talk about that for a second. The debt is all those tax credits piling up. To buy a bond, to buy a treasury bond, you must use already in existence U.S. dollars. Now, what happens when I take my U.S. dollars and I put them into a a CD at the bank or I put them into a 401k at the bank? What happens? I can't really get to that money unless I meet the conditions of that bond or that that savings plan. And if I take it out early, what happens? I get a penalty. I get a heavy penalty. Okay. All that's doing is delaying purchasing power. But it's also something that is an anachronism from the gold standard. We didn't want to print more tokens against the gold. So we sell bonds to pull the money out of the economy so that the money in the economy would still stay pegged at the right level to the gold. Well, now that we're not on a pegged commodity, we're not pegged to gold. The idea of selling bonds, raising interest rates, things like that, that's just a big old fat money infusion to the rich. Okay. Because who who owns bonds, right? Well, you know, some old timers do when they were retirement accounts, et cetera. States do, sure. But that is net money infusion into the economy. But it's pre-funded. When they create a treasury, three months, six month, nine month, whatever, they pre-fund that. They already know, they've already budgeted the amount that is going into that. Okay. Pretty simple stuff, but that is part of the deal that the United States government rules say that in order for us to spend money, we've got to sell corresponding bonds to offset that. It doesn't need to be done at all. We could set the interest rate to zero and never worry about that again. That's a pretty simple story there. So. Ultimately, we've covered a lot. I've been on here a little bit longer than I had anticipated going. Um, But ultimately, I just want you to understand, we talk about things like Social Security, things like that. There is no, you know, old dollars crumpled up in some drawer somewhere from back in 1919 when Granny started donating or whatever. You know, there is nothing like that. It doesn't work that way. Every dollar the government spends is a new dollar. And every government tax dollar is tech, you know, dollar deletion. Remember, it's a tax credit. If you ever saw the movie, the, uh, the Dark Crystal, you had the light, you had the dark, they came together. And when they came together, they were gone. They had served their purpose. Light and darkness came together. Okay? 
if you think about that, spend the, you got double entry accounting, spent the money into the economy. Now it's somebody else's dollar. Tax it back into the economy. They zero out. Does this make sense? It's gone. It's deleted. Steve is wearing a Capitals jersey, not just any Capitals jersey, but a steal your face Capitals jersey. So the issue with Social Security isn't a matter of it going bankrupt because it can never go bankrupt. It's the U.S. dollar. The issue is who has the authority, and they put that authority in a legal sense to a trust fund. Well, that trust fund is nothing more than a spreadsheet. When you get that statement every year that says how much you've paid, how much you've earned, et cetera, that isn't sitting there saying you've got that money sitting in a bank somewhere. Your money was literally deleted. Social Security, when you the FICA is a tax. Whenever you hear a federal tax, those taxes delete money. They close it out and it's gone. They don't have that money sitting in some account somewhere. I hope you understand what I'm saying. It doesn't just sit there waiting to be spent someday. In other words, you have a, a bill, a spending bill. That bill spends money. You have a taxing bill. You bill, it deletes money. If you have a taxing bill, you raise taxes without corresponding spending. All you've done is deleted more money from the economy. If you spend more than you tax, that is a deficit. But if you reduce the deficit, what are you reducing? Let's go back to this final thing before I get out of here. You reduce your and my holding of dollars. You reduce the private sector amount of money that we have. Now, if you want to tax the hell out of the rich, you're getting no fight out of me. But just remember that as you tax them out, it doesn't pay for anything. It doesn't provide anyone anything. The only way you can provide someone with something is with a spending bill. Two very different things. If I put taxes to offset on a bill for spending, I haven't paid for the program. It doesn't work that way. This is the bullshit that the, uh, the Congressional Budget Office uses. So I want you to understand, new money is spent into the economy. It does its business in the economy. And when someone pays a tax, it's deleted from the economy and it closes those things out. I hope this was helpful. I can't guarantee it was helpful. Let's look and see. Ah, here we go. Deficits are good for the economy. We need to replenish dollars that are leaked from the economy via trade deficit, private savings, et cetera. Now, folks, I put this out there long ago, years ago, and I've been saying it for years, years and years and years, a decade. I want you to ask me any questions you have. I can't guarantee I'll answer every one of them, but I sure as hell know people that can. So don't be a stranger. We need each other. I need you. You need me. Let's make this thing happen together. And with that, I'm out of here, folks. Have a great day, everybody. The Rogue Scholar is a production of Real Progressives. If you would like to support our work, please visit patreon.com slash real progressives.